The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been spending the last number of weeks looking at this set of teachings the Buddha used quite regularly called the Seven Factors of Awakening. Here in this teaching, the Buddha is describing the qualities of mind that he discovered in his own practice, his own reflecting on his own mind, that support insight, seeing things clearly, seeing things as they are, and then the freedom that comes out of seeing things clearly. So the seven factors again, and this is a good list to memorize, and as you might know, it's easy to memorize anything up to seven, and then it gets harder, so... This is doable. So mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness. If we can simply track present moment experience, that's a really wholesome thing for the mind to be doing. And in fact, these other six factors depend on that continuity of awareness. You don't really get other wholesome factors. The way it's described in the the Buddhist tradition, if you have mindfulness, then all of mindfulness is friends gather around. So it's true. It's hard to be really obnoxious and really mean-spirited and really greedy, lustful, deluded when there's a continuity of mindfulness. That's your task. See if that's true. Can you be mindful in a continuous way and caught up in unwholesome mind states? No, mindfulness undermines unwholesome states of mind. And the same way that mindfulness will strengthen wholesome states. One of the purpose, purposes of this guided meditation we just finished, just keeping, even conceptually, just keeping the idea of calm in mind. So we're breathing in, we're there with the body, the physicality of the breathing process, breathing in, breathing out. And we're asking the mind to be attuned to the experience of calm or ease. And if you just do that and notice whatever calm there is, it gets stronger. And the thing is, these wholesome qualities are always there. I gave this talk this morning and I mentioned that my wife and I have been looking at HVAC systems, you know, heating, air conditioning systems to replace what we have at our house. And some of you know maybe about heat pumps. That's sort of the new thing. They're very efficient. And heat pumps are amazing. They can take the air from the outside even on a very cold day, like even below zero temperature. And their heat pumps are able to extract heat from even very cold air and bring it in and use it to warm the house. And the same way, in the hot day, when it's, let's say, 100 degrees outside, a heat pump can extract cool air, even when it's 100 degrees out, and bring it on the inside. And this is what we have to learn in practice, too. We may be not calm at all, but that doesn't mean there isn't calm in the mind. So it's really, it's like, for example... There could be a little calm in handling the agitation that's present. Now, I could either either attend to the aspects of the mind that's agitated and disturbed and scattered, or I can attune, attend 
to the quality of the mind that's steady and easeful and calm. And it makes a difference. When we pay attention to these wholesome qualities, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture or joy, tranquility or calm, concentration or stillness or peace, and equanimity, that's the seventh. So these are the seven factors. The reason you want to memorize the list is you want to learn how to recognize these seven factors even when they're in a very seed-like form, not very well developed in your heart, in your mind, in a particular moment, because that's the proximate cause for calm getting stronger or concentration getting stronger or the quality of investigation or interest getting stronger is to be able to recognize it. (coughs) So this is another thing just to begin to experiment with. It's really important that as you hear, you know, the different teachings from the Buddha, that at least some of them are interesting enough to you that you begin to play with it and experiment. So for example, this principle, is it actually true? Don't believe it, but Is it actually true that when the mind notices wholesome qualities, their tendency is to get stronger in the mind? And when the mind notices unwholesome qualities like greed or aversion or fear, that it tends to get weaker. Now, you might have a lot of fear, a lot of anger, and you look at it, you know, it's not getting weaker. Well, we're not really being mindful with it. We're being angry at it. So this is the thing. Don't assume because it's not going away. It may be that we're observing the unwholesome state with an unwholesome state. That's not mindfulness. That's impatience or anger or controlling, you know, trying to control the emotions or the mindsets that are present. Mindfulness, to go back to the first of the seven factors, Mindfulness is that willingness to keep the present moment in mind. So it's the not forgetting, and it's not judging, it's not wanting or needing the moment to be other than it is. So in this way, it's not easy to be mindful because almost always we fall back into this default where we want things to be other than the way they are. Or if things are really good right now, we don't want it to change. So almost always, you should just assume that almost always the default of our heart, of our mind, is to be controlling. To be caught in the controlling pleasant by trying to hold on to the pleasant and controlling the unpleasant by trying to get rid of it. So if there's any of that, then it's not mindful. It's not mindfulness. It's greed and aversion or delusion. Mindfulness is a willingness to be present without the controlling, without the judging, without the reactivity. So in the past few weeks, I've talked about the first four. And so we have mindfulness, which is the governing factor for all the seven. And then the next three are what we call the energizing factors. So interest. So when we have continuity of mindfulness, then we can be interested because It's like there's this tracking. Mindfulness is tracking how things are unfolding, what's coming and going, and the interactions between external experience and the internal 
interpretation of what's going on and the internal reactions to what's going on. So there's this dynamic between the mind that's knowing and the things that are being known. And mindfulness is tracking this dynamic. So that means we can investigate. And investigation doesn't mean sort of aimless investigation. It means specifically the mind is interested in cause and effect. How is it that stressful states of mind, entangled states of mind, heavy states of mind come to be? How is it that released, kind, elevated or buoyant states of mind come to be? How is it that these, you know, suffering and non-suffering come to be? And investigation is observing the unfolding of experience with that in mind. Because that's what the mind, the heart is actually interested in. Anybody's heart and mind. When we get rid of the superficiality of our mind, which is concerned about what people are wearing or what people think about me or whether I have snot from blowing my nose sitting there, or, you know, all these sort of things that we tend, you know, or did I say the right thing earlier today or what am I going to do tomorrow when I go to work or what, what the heart is actually interested in when it settles is how it is that stress comes and goes or how it is that happiness comes and goes. Don't you want to be happy, you know, or understand? A lot of us get complacent or resigned. Well, it can't be figured out. Or we're, we resign ourselves to, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just bargain for certain highlights like being able to crawl into bed at the end of the day or being able to have my favorite food every once in a while or being able to find relationships where we have a deal. I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. But that's, uh, first of all, those things aren't stable. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really quench this deeper maybe intuitive sense that we forget sometimes, but I think it's there in all human beings, the sense that it's possible for this heart to be happy, really happy. A happy that a happiness that's not about things being just right now. Like a happiness for no good reason. It's not conditioned. It's not because you're treating me nicely or because I'm warm or because I have the food I want. So this is the investigation. You know, like what actually leads to that release of tension in the mind and the body and the heart? What actually contributes to the tension, to the heart, mind, body getting bound up? And to the degree we get that, we begin to understand it. It's like a, the mind is learning to read or comprehend, not in an intellectual sense, but in an immediate, direct sense, how things are work, how things work. And it starts to get uh, inspired or energized. This is the third factor: mindfulness, interest or investigation, and then energy. 
So energy is a quality that's always there, but it's often not like, uh, in a way we're throwing water on that flame of energy, you know, the, because energy, it's just this basic willingness of the heart, mind, body to do, to do something, to sort of, we apply ourselves to the task at hand. Now, we see it all the time, but notice how we have to activate that desire to do. We have to trick it. You know, we give it caffeine or we dangle a carrot in front of it. If you do this, then, you know, you'll get this at the end of the day. Or we dangle fear in front of it. If you don't do this, you'll get fired or this person won't love you or... And that's how we trigger the to-do, that the energy to-do. Now, this kind of energy is more stable because it's arising out of understanding. Remember, investigation, the second factor, is the wisdom factor. So it's the mind is comprehending or understanding better. So it's incremental. The mind is understanding better how it all works, how it is that stressful states come to be how it is that this heart can release, can be free, can be happy, can be loving, can be skillful. It's just learning. And how is it learning that? It's not like it's found a special book with all the secrets. It's simply observing the mind in particular and how it gets bound up and how it becomes unbound. It's like all the secrets have been there. We just haven't paid attention in a continuous way. We haven't learned the lesson. It's being played out like it's not magic how we get in bound up, complicated, contracted, entangled states, right? We're just not awake. We're not paying attention. And it isn't rocket science how the heart falls into more buoyant, loving, patient, resilient states of mind. We just haven't been paying attention. So when we do pay attention and we investigate, we're interested, we let it all sort of unfold in front of this clear, wise attention, well, then the mind is inspired. It's willing to apply itself. That's the birth of real wholesome energy. Now the mind is inspired to apply itself. To what? Well, more continuity of awareness, more interest, and how it is that stressful states come, how it is that stressful states go away. I mean, basically, all the different ways we take things that aren't actually personal, personally. You know, like when someone's in a bad mood and they treat us in a way that hurts, we take it personally. And we get all bound up. As opposed to understanding, some people, sometimes people are hurting and they act it out. That's how it is sometimes. Sometimes I'm hurting and I act it out. And that's how it is sometimes. We don't have to personalize these things. And when we do, we tend to contract. We tend to act in unskillful ways. We tend to set in motion stress for ourselves and others. And then it it kind of bounces back and forth between people. My stressed out, complicated, entangled mind tends to trigger your stressed out, entangled, complicated mind, and back and forth like that. So then 
we're investigating, we're beginning to understand, we feel empowered by what we're understanding, observing the mind, and we apply the mind more and more to that task. And the energy builds into rapture or joy. And this is a heart and mind wholeheartedly engaged with what it is understanding to be wholesome. And that's a delightful experience for any human mind. You probably can remember moments in your life where you were fully engaged in some task. It could be some reflective task, like in a meditation, or out doing service, taking care of your niece, or changing your cat's litter. It doesn't really matter what it is, but when we're wholeheartedly engaged, fully present, understanding, right? We're tracking the experience, understanding the wholesomeness of what we're doing. This needs to be done. This heart is doing it. It feels good. And then delighting in that, that's joy. Joy is when the mind, the energy of the mind or the energy of the heart gathers itself around a wholesome activity. And there's enough wisdom that the mind knows what it's doing. It knows that it's wholeheartedly engaged in something it trusts to be wholesome. Now, we're often wholeheartedly engaged, but not often in activities that are have wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, right? A lot of times we're wholeheartedly engaged in getting what we want, come hell or high water, you know, even if we have to manipulate others or you know, whatever. So that's the, sometimes that joy, that rapture is called um, freedom from remorse. Right? There's no, in that moment, think of it temporarily. In those moments, the mind isn't second guessing itself. Because as it understands the situation, this is wholesome. The motivation, the underlying Intention in the mind is wholesome. So the mind really delights. So can you think of some examples from your life when uh, you felt this rapture? It's really important to understand the experience of rapture, the delight. It's like we get it in meditation because it's such a wholesome activity. We're not trying to harm anybody. We're not trying to prove anything to anybody. We're not even, in, in a deeper understanding of the practice, We're not even trying to attain something or get away from something. The the real practice that we're cultivating is a simple, profound interest in understanding the way it is. So it's really wholesome. There's nothing neurotic, there's nothing unwholesome about this pure desire to see more clearly, understand more deeply, connect, more intimately with the way it is. And so when we're doing that wholeheartedly, right, and the energy of the mind is feeding itself back into it, and the mind recognizes what's going on, it delights in that. It delights in the wholesomeness of that. In a sense, like, oh, this is, this is what I was meant to do. This is the right thing to be doing. So it's the joy, the rapture is really the absence of this Neurotic second-guessing of the mind. Neurotic judging, wanting things to be different. So it's really the, 
the completeness, the wholeheartedness, the mind is really unified in the activity. And it's really stable because it doesn't doubt what it's doing. You know, if you ever watch your mind during the day, it's like we take one step, two steps forward, one step back, you know, one step forward, two steps back. We're constantly doing a little and then back, oh, should I, ooh. Even when we're saying something to somebody, we're wondering, oh, maybe I shouldn't. So sometimes when we see people who have a lot of power, a lot of charisma, it's because either they're deluded thinking that what they're doing is wholesome, which can have temporary, temporary stability. Some politicians are successful because they're totally convinced that what they're saying, what they're doing is right. doesn't mean it is right, but they can have a lot of power. But when you combine that with somebody who has a very clear, reflective mind, they've thought, they've reflected deeply about what they're doing, they've looked for shadows, and they really find something, like in that moment, what they're meant to do, and they're doing it, then there's a lot of power in that, you could call it a kind of integrity, because It's like all parts of the mind, all parts of the heart, all aspects of the heart are in alignment, doing the same thing with the same intention, no second guessing, no dispersal or scattering of the energy of the heart. That's what joy is. And it's so satisfying in a deeper sense, that joy or rapture, that it triggers tranquility. That's the next factor. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight before we before I open it up for discussion. So tranquility, it's not just sequential, but it's useful to think of these seven as a sequence from mindfulness, supporting the arising of interest or real investigation, and specifically the investigation, how wholesome and unwholesome states of mind come to be and go away. That allows for the arising of energy, the mind's willingness to apply itself Finally, to a task it trusts. Deepening understanding is a task I can get behind. I can give myself to. That builds the rapture. Freedom from remorse. Freedom from second guessing. So this is the mind delighting in its own unification, like its own wholeheartedness. And it's very satisfying for the mind And that triggers uh, tranquility. Tranquility is best thought of as the temporary removal of greed or craving from the mind. Like the mind or the heart doesn't need things to be different than they are. So it's like, ah, that deep, deeply ingrained pattern in the mind that constantly want things to be different than they are. Always kind of a restless, greed is really the ultimate cause for restlessness. Always thinking, even though it's great, could be better, you know, even though I have a lot of money or I have a lot of love or, oh, but I'm more. So greed, you can even be greedy in your meditation. Instead of appreciating the calm that's there, maybe more, more calm, more steadiness which doesn't, of course, lead to more calm and steadiness. It's agitating 
to want more. So real tranquility is the heart's recognizing, right? Because all of these states you have to, we're training the mind to recognize. So tranquility is beginning to recognize the heart's capacity to relax uh, its tendency to need or want things to be other than they are. Like a contentedness. Ah, I can put down that load. Put down that huge edifice. Right? Because probably almost bigger than any belief we have is the idea that this isn't it. Anybody think this is it? Like this is the moment you were born to have? But we're arrogantly convinced this isn't it. This isn't the morn, the moment I've always wanted. You know? I'm not there yet. Anybody think they're there yet? This is delusion. Right? With certainty, thinking we're not there is the expression of this restlessness, the craving. Thinking that perfection or whatever, nibbana, whatever you word you might use, is like somewhere else. Because that's what we're always going to think. Right? Oh, it's out there. It's a little further. <laughs> That's a setup. So tranquility is when that cycle reverses. And the mind is beginning to sense that I don't have to go anywhere. I don't need things to be other than what they already are. Ah. So in a sense, it's like the heart experimenting with trusting the present moment as it actually is already. That's tranquility. Make sense? So that's our homework for the next couple of weeks. Because now for the next three or so weeks, we're going to look at the tranquilizing side of the equation. So mindfulness is the governing factor, tracking present moment experience, not forgetting present moment experience. Then we have three energizing, investigation, the application of energy, and rapture. And we have three tranquilizing, tranquility, stillness or concentration, and equanimity. So we want to look at this dynamic when we're in a very wholesome place, moment in our life. It doesn't have to be special. You did your best all day at your job, and now you're home, you don't have any obligation, you sit down on the couch, Ah, can this be enough? Can this be okay? It's not perfect, but can this heart right now, in this moment, we're not saying like for 10 minutes or two hours, but just in this moment, can this heart be content? Can this heart trust conditions as they are? This is the cultivation of tranquility. The heart is sensing the capacity of the heart to trust, to be at ease with conditions, not neurotically thinking they need to be different than they are. Ah. And you have to be honest. You don't want to sugarcoat like that's, you know, like more, uh, it's not the energy of tranquility, like convincing yourself this is perfect which we do sometimes with exuberant states of mind, you know, 
this is what I've always wanted. I always wanted to hear Mark say this <laughs> or something like that. We get, and it, it can look, but it, it's sort of very thin and the mind tends to collapse. So tranquility is more trustworthy because it's sinking in and realizing as it's sinking in that it's okay to sink in. It's okay to trust. Maybe it's okay that the body feels the way it feels. The mind is the way it is. The conditions are the way that they are. Like even this moment now, being, you know, a moment ago so certain that this wasn't it, but how do we know right now that we need something else in order to be happy or free or released? Are we sure certain? So it has a kind of humility. Like, okay, well maybe I'll just experiment with being content. Like we, in a way, we demand that before I'm going to relax my heart, I need everything my culture has neurotically taught me that I need. I mean, that's insane. Instead of, well, let me just see what, like, is it okay to relax the heart with the conditions of the moment? Like, is it okay to be an imperfect human being living an imperfect life with an imperfect body? Or should we be tight? Because it's not okay. So you just experiment with uh, tranquility. And then see that as tranquility gets some momentum, there are moments then where the mind really drops all neurotic activity. So this is the very definition of concentration, the sixth factor. Concentration is that moment in the mind when there's no longer any of the hindrances, any of the agitating mental activities happening. So the mind, it's sort of a, you could say a perfection, of a moment of perfect contentment. And so the mind, because it's not being drawn out into the world to make it, to get what I want, to get rid of what I don't want, the mind, in a sense, is settling in itself, or the heart is settling in itself. It's not actually coming to a point, but it's just a useful metaphor. It's like the mind is gathering to a still point, peaceful place. It's really the still, it's not that the mind is like a still point, it's really the stillness of the mind itself. There's no agitating energy in the mind. And we call that stillness or that peace the peace of the mind not being greedy, not being aversive or fearful, we call it a concentrated state or samadhi is the Pali word. Stillness, peace, silence, space. And it's like a deep healing because the mind then, in just ordinary states of concentration, the mind realizes something about the mind. It realizes that the mind is quite beautiful, peaceful. It, that, it, that it's in its nature peaceful and beautiful. And so its relationship to the external, what we call the external world, 
you know, what I see, what I hear, what I think about, what I touch. Its relationship to sense experience starts to become transformed. Because with our ordinary minds, our ordinary view of things, we imagine that our happiness depends on what I see, what I touch, what I own, all these sort of things. But the more we have moments of stillness, the more that relationship to the external world gets questioned and we start having more equanimity. Like, great, if pleasant things come my way, great. If unpleasant things come my way, I'll work with it. But we don't imagine or we imagine less and less that happiness depends or is actually a function of what's going on around us. My personality is just what it is. The weather is just what it is. The people around me and how they behave, that's just what it is. The sensations of my body, just what they are. The health of my body. So the mind begins to realize, I'll just work with whatever comes my way. I'll participate, but I'm not going to cultivate a dependence on these conditions because I'm beginning to realize that happiness actually, ultimately, isn't a function of the conditions. Now, this is a gradual awakening or a gradual deepening of understanding. So don't, you know, just start to experiment. Already, I think, if you look, especially with a wide sweep, like over 20 years, if you're old enough, you look back 20 years ago or 10 years ago, five years ago, and I bet if you've been cultivating more awareness, more wisdom in your life, I bet you'll notice that things you thought 20 years ago were so important aren't so important. Now, hopefully you're not replacing those things with other things, (laughs) you know. But naturally, if a human being isn't overwhelmed by oppressive states like poverty or, you know, other forms of oppression and like being unhealthy, having a lot of difficult experience, being treated unjustly, Generally, healthy human beings with enough good fortune naturally start to wake up. So the Buddha's teachings are just pointing the mind in a way, directing the mind in a way that just amplifies this natural awakening process that will happen if we're not overwhelmed by life, where the mind naturally just pays attention and realizes that getting attached, getting tighter and tighter about how things are is not the way to be happy. Becoming more relaxed, taking things less personally, actually leads to a more resonant happiness. And these these teachings, this path of awakening, is just taking this principle to the nth degree, developing it as long as it works, as long as it delivers more and more release more and more peace. So these are the seven factors, mindfulness, investigation, the application of energy. So the arising of energy, the willingness to do, and then putting it to the task of continuity of mindfulness and interest in the arising and ceasing of stressful states. So this Builds energy, leading to rapture. Rapture is deeply healing and satisfying, allowing the heart to begin to relax 
its restless need for things to be other than they are. This releasing, relaxing of the heart leads to more and more moments of concentration or stillness or peace. The heart deeply at rest. The heart for a moment, for in a temporary way, is free of neurotic activity. So it's the stillness of no neurotic activity for a period of time. That's what concentration is. When the mind is deeply concentrated for that period of time, there's no neurotic activity. The mind has turned back in on itself and it's resting there in the space of the mind itself. Peaceful, empty of neurotic activity. And then the mind's relationship to experience begins to be transformed in the direction of equanimity. That's the seventh factor. Things come and go. Some of them are pleasant. Some of them are unpleasant. I'm not afraid to participate and engage, but I'm not neurotically dependent on how my life unfolds, how much health I have, how much wealth I have, how much praise I get from other people or insults I get from other people. I'll just work with it doesn't mean I'm looking for people to insult me or humiliate me. So it doesn't, when we say that we're equanimous, it doesn't mean that we don't know the difference between a really hot, humid day and a really pleasant day. Of course, we still are sensitive. We're more sensitive. But we're just not uh, making happiness a function of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of sense experience. So here... Equanimity is really the expression of wisdom. It's the heart that is beginning to understand that the happiness of non-attachment is much more resonant and powerful and beautiful than the happiness of getting what we want. Because we're always, that will always be an insecure happiness, getting what we want. Because we're always threatened by it going away or not lasting or something bad coming. So as long as we think happiness is a function of sense experience, getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, it's always going to be a stressful state. And even if we have almost everything we want, we can still imagine somebody having more than us. Because it's a relative thing. They did an experiment, I think it was at Harvard, where they asked students, you know, probably, who signed up for the study, Okay, you have a choice. You can have uh, like $200,000, but everybody else will get $180,000. Or we'll give you $80,000, but everybody else will have 20. We'll get 20 in a group. You know, they set it up. And what do you think they prefer? They're relatively, right? They wanted to be better than the other people. So they could have a lot more, but if everybody else gets that, it's not so special. I mean, that's a, a kind of a gross approximation of the study, but the principle is, is right, that like our happiness, we're in this competitive environment. We, it's like our life may be miserable, but at least it isn't as miserable as those other people. And that's a stressful kind of happiness. It's not a very satisfying, resonant kind of happiness. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people about your own experiences of tranquility, what gets in the way, or any question about any of these seven factors that come to mind.
So thoughts that come to mind about these qualities. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, that's a, a more ordinary, available experience of rapture. Playing a game with someone where, you know, like one-on-one basketball, where you're with your best friend and it's not about winning, it's about playing. And you can have rapture there because it's wholesome, right? And you're putting down the whole world and everything you're doing, you're fully engaged, this is not a passive activity, but everything, every motivation, every intention is wholesome. So the mind begins to delight in the purity of that engagement. That's the beginning of rapture. So, no, playing one-on-one basketball is, you know, it's not unwholesome, but it's not the most wholesome thing. Understanding the underlying nature of the mind is much more wholesome than that. So we get it in ordinary situations, but it can be amplified in practice by really giving ourselves... Same with service is another place you might experience rapture where, for better or worse, it's your responsibility to show up and do this thing with this person at this time and you don't hold back, like uh, Greg was saying. You know, you just, because you're the right person to be doing this, there isn't anybody else. You don't second guess it. You don't complain. You just do it. And you might find some real rapture. And I mentioned last week, it's, it can be felt viscerally. So rapture is a mental quality, but it has a physical component. The body feel the body and mind feels elevated, literally elevated, when we're starting to feel rapture. We feel lighter, buoyant, energized. It's a beautiful feeling. It can be intense at times, rapture. So but almost always you would consider it pleasant, even if it's intense, and sometimes extremely pleasant, like swept away in a beautiful way. Other thoughts about any of these factors that come to mind? Yeah, please say your name. Yeah. Well, you want to, like there's no way to really address the force of grasping without investigation, because you have to see directly, experientially in your mind, what is the mind doing that is supporting the activity of grasping? Like, how does it get momentum? Clearly it has momentum, not just in your mind, of course, in all of our minds. But what does my mind do that strengthens that tendency to grasp, to want things to be other, to get, to get rid of? What supports that? What idea? And it, you know, I can give you the intellectual answer, which is, you know, from the Buddhist teachings and from my own experience, it's taking things personally. It's putting a sense of self. Because when we put a sense of self in the middle of our experience, then that sense of self feels threatened when I waste my life away watching stupid TV, right? Or when i not doing what I could be doing. I could be running 50 miles a week. I could be cooking organic meals and sharing them with my friends. I could be, and it never ends. And so, because I have this sense of self, I want it to be special, perfect. And that is stressful. To concoct a sense of being apart from everything else, and then to need to protect it, and to, 
sort of make it special, all of that is the root of grasping. Intellectually, now you know. But we actually have to see that happen. So in a non-judging, non-interfering way, as you're tracking your present moment experience, you need to see the birth of your mind taking things personally. And so basically, you're seeing the sense of self being constructed there in a moment. Oh, this is how the mind takes things personally. Ah, this is the inevitable stress that comes with it. Ah, in seeing it clearly, the mind lets go. This is the release of that very same stress. So that's the Four Noble Truths. There's a, there is suffering, there's a cause, taking things personally. There is release, and there's a way to cultivate that release. That was the Buddha's first teaching, the, first no, or the Four Noble Truths. Basically, that cycle. And that's why we investigate experience. And that's why we keep applying energy, effort to that. And that's what makes us happy. Doing Just being on the path is delightful. Because we know we're going in the right direction. You know, as opposed to trying to be the richest person in the room or the most beautiful person in the room or the most liked person in the room or the most feared person in the room or, you know, the most anonymous person in the room, right? I mean, we're all in one of those trips, right? Or maybe many of them. And all of them are stressful. So how to go beyond that? Well, we can't just snap our fingers. We have have to see the roots of the grasping and the way of non-grasping. And that's playing itself out. Because we're always putting down grasping. It's not like we're grasping and then grasping more. There are moments of grasping and there's moments of releasing. So we can learn what it is to release that attachment because it's happening. We put down attachment all the time. We're just not aware of it when we do it. So we lose, like we know we have to let go, but we don't know how to let go. So we have to observe, we have to have to observe when the mind does let go. Oh, that's what letting go is. We have to see it directly, immediately in experience. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a direct, immediate, that's why we use the word insight, or sort of intuiting how it is instead of figuring it out intellectually. Thanks, Emily, for the good question. Other thoughts that come to mind? Experiences from your practice you'd like to share with the group? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. And that's one of the ways that, you know, grasping manifests an infinite number of ways, you know, depending on our particular, this mind's particular conditioning. And one of the classic ways in in one way or another, controlling the routine. And like, if I just get my routine together, I mean, we all know this to some degree. I just get my routine together, I'll be saved, I'll be happy. And we can get, what do they call it, like uh, Nazi, he used that word a lot, like Nazis about our routine. Don't mess with my routine. You know, you'll be sorry if you mess with my routine. And it can feel like an actual threat if someone messes with our, you know, eats our oatmeal and there's none left or whatever it might be. And it's interesting, we want to free ourselves, we want to protect ourselves, but we end, end up imprisoning ourselves in these patterns of grasping, whatever it might be. Now the opposite is being one of these people who I will not be tied down by routines. You know, 
I will not be tied down by commitments. That is just as much an, an imprisonment as being the person who needs routine. See, there's no way around this unless you understand how the mind creates the suffering. Like, it's the identification process itself. It doesn't matter what we're identified with. We could be identified with being the easygoing hippie or the person tied to a routine or the one who wants to make money or the one who thinks capitalism is bad. But it's the fixedness or the identification with the idea that is the cause. That's the grasping. So it's subtle. And we keep looking for the right thing to grasp. Like that's the ordinary way to be happy. If I can just figure out what to grasp, I'll be happy. But what the Buddha realized and then tried to teach is anything you grasp is a cause for happiness. Now, it's relatively skillful to grasp a spiritual path that works. But you have to let that go. So one of the things that people do is they grasp meditation as part of the routine. Don't mess with my meditation time. I go to a Kamagon on Sunday nights. Don't mess with that. And then at some point people realize the attachment and then they give it all up, which isn't the right thing. What needed to be given up was the attachment or the mind's dependency, not necessarily having oatmeal right, <laughs> or going to the gym. Those are actually relatively skillful things. But the mind's dependency can be quite neurotic and crazy and un- unhealthy. And that's really the trick with the practice. And that's why these seven factors need to be in balance because the mind needs to be a very sensitive, balanced instrument to really get. It's not about what the mind is grasping, what the mind is attached to. It's the attachment itself that's the problem. There's no place for attachment if you're interested in real happiness. But remember, not being attached does not look like non-engagement, right? Non-engagement is just one kind of attachment like, oh, the world isn't worth getting involved in. That's called attachment. That's not wisdom, you know. So people often mistake non-attachment with being, you know, passive or just lying around. That's not non-attachment. That's attached to the idea that nothing matters. You can be just as attached to nihilism as you can be attached to fundamentalism, like I know the way, whatever it might be. Any closing words? We have time for just one more comment or question. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. Well, in the moment is always surprising because part of the habit of attaching and identifying and constructing a sense of self is it? it's very, very familiar. So when the mind intuits, when it drops that, it intuits that it can drop it, like it can drop the identification or the construction of a me at the middle of my experience, it's surprising. And it's a little bit like a free fall or the, the ground dropping out or something that was heavy is dropped suddenly. You didn't even realize it was heavy but now you realize it was heavy in the dropping of it. You were so used to carrying it, you had forgotten how heavy it was, but then it's put down, and all of a sudden there's a lot of lightness. But it's not that you're light, it's that something was heavy is no longer there, being heavy. So 
and then in terms of over time, it's, uh, it expresses itself as a mind that's more resilient and nimble. So things will happen, and because of habit, it will trigger a self-view, you know, taking things personally. But, it, but that taking things personally doesn't find as much ground. It can't get quite established, and it, it's there for a moment or a couple moments, but it's more likely than to fall apart. And so it gets to the point that as like I having an interaction with a friend and it triggers some insecurity, even as the insecurity is coming together, that whole I'm the one who's insecure is coming together, the mind recognizes as it not really what I imagine it to be. So it doesn't it's almost like it's porous. It's you see the pattern, the neurotic pattern, but you're also seen through it. It's like a figment or a, just a, an old tape that you know is an old tape. You know, it's like those, those kind of neurotic patterns we had when we were teenagers. Now they still can get triggered when the conditions are just right, but we don't really believe it's me anymore. When we were a teenager, we believed it was me, you know, but not now. Now we know, oh yeah, that's just that old pattern. I don't really have to be that insecure, neurotic person. It's there. The sort of shape is there. I can kind of fall into it when I for, I'm forgetful. But when I'm more balanced, I know I don't have to go there. But I can't, I don't need to be afraid of it either. I don't need to get rid of it because I know it's just a conditioned pattern. So part of that freedom is understanding that conditioned patterns are just that. We're not even neurotically in need of having to get rid of all of those conditioned patterns. They all fade away on their own just by not taking them personally. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Let's just take a few seconds now. Let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. And appreciating being here. And appreciating all the women and all the men who had busy lives like we do, cultivated the practice, heard the teachings, cultivated the practice, had some insight, shared what they learned. And this has happened generation by generation for a long time now, 2,500 years. And so now it's our turn in our busy lives to hear these teachings and to do the best we can, cultivating them, deepening our understanding, and setting in motion the causes for real peace, real understanding, and freedom from suffering. So not just in our own hearts, but out into the world as well. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org